All right. Welcome, everyone. My name is Scott Shepard. I am the founder and host of the City's First podcast and as well as the City's First webinar series. And I believe we're in our 13th episode now. Um, we're really pleased to have here today Jerome Horn from New York City, from Brooklyn, I believe, New York. Um, really excited to have him here, who's a real transit industry expert and evangelist. He'll be kind of um, representing himself today, his own personal views in terms of what's happening in the industry. Um, but thank you, Jerome, for joining us. I know we've been kind of chatting back and forth for a while to try to make this happen. And today's the day where, you know, the stars are aligned. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Scott. Really looking forward to our discussion today. And uh, yeah, I know we've, we've, I think we've been interacting online for a number of years here and then yeah. trying to get this together for a few months. So yep. excited that we're finally doing it. Thank you, Jerome. Yeah, and hopefully this will be one of many conversations, part one, we'll say. So I'm going to just uh, go through Jerome's uh, bio real fast, and then we'll just kind of hand it off to our normal format, which is conversational. We go through a series of about four or five questions, kind of back and forth. It's a little bit of an exchange, but basically I hand the mic to our speaker, our guest, and uh, they provide their own kind of personal take on what's happening in mobility, urbanism, decarbonization, micromobility, as well as active transit. And uh, we let the audience kind of draw their own conclusions. So this is not meant to be, let's say, an echo chamber or think tank. This is meant to be much more accessible and I like to say democratic so that uh, we can provide a variety of opinions uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. So here in Europe, UK, as well as in North America. So um, anyway, let's uh, kind of get started with Jerome's background. So Jerome Horn's vast industry expertise include leading transit center strategy around increasing representative leadership and inclusive decision-making in the transportation field, a change that is essential to advancing transit center's mission to improve transit in ways that make our cities more just and sustainable. Prior to that role, Jerome was with Indigo in Indianapolis, as well as Foursquare Integrated Transportation Planning. I believe you had a remote role that you mentioned, where he worked in roles concentrating on proactive community engagement and the rider experience, which is very important for using public transit. Recognized uh, through many different uh, organizations, but notably such as for his passion and dedication to the industry, Jerome was recently named a Mass Transit Magazine 40 Under 40 honoree in the year 2020, as well as an American Public Transportation Association Emerging Leader Class of 2022 member. So congratulations, Jerome, on all those accolades. It's, again, it's a really honored to have you here. Um, and uh, just wanted to kind of segue into our questions before we start. But um, again, um, you know, I think it's a really transformative time in terms of cities and public transit. Uh, in terms of kind of what's happening, let's say, in this uh, post-COVID landscape that we're trying to navigate in, where some downtowns are at 85% occupancy or 85% ridership, some are at only 50%. So it, it, it we see the, the kind of gamut of, let's say, uh, you know, um, different uh, experiences on an urban level, ranging from San Francisco to Salt Lake City to Baltimore to Boston. So it's really interesting to kind of scan the landscape here, but we're just going to get started here um, and talk about, uh, I think, uh, burning question number one, which is yet to be resolved. And I really want to get your kind of quick take on it, let's say for five minutes, <laughs> which is how can we avoid the transit fiscal cliff? Oh, yes, definitely a big question. Very topical. Uh, and, and and something that uh, a lot of different communities and cities and agencies are, are experiencing and, and thinking about. So, you know, I, I think first I'll zoom out and say, you know, a lot of this comes down to us deciding, and particularly in the United States, you know, 
are we going to fund transit at appropriate levels? Do we value transit as an essential part of human society, a way that allows people to get where they need to go when they need to go and, and fund it at the levels that we really should be doing? And my, my personal take and opinion is that we have not done that. We're not doing that. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of that has caused a situation where we have this deterioration in, you know, service quality, we have this deterioration in availability of service, coverage of service. Um, and, you know, there are many other factors that are involved there. Um, but, you know, th this this fiscal cliff that we find ourselves getting in, you know, there's a lot of, you know, over the years, especially for older legacy systems, right, like these uh, deferred maintenance that happened for decades and decades. So there's a lot of things that have gotten us to this moment, besides just obviously the pandemic was a big part of that, too. And, you know, a lot of agencies have been relying on some COVID relief funding that came in, and that's drying up. And that's really sort of leading to the critical moment that we're having now. Um, but, you know, I, I think our budgets reflect our priorities. And when you look at any, you know, city, state, federal government, you look at different line items, right? There are certain things that, that get a lot of funding and sometimes things that, that don't, that maybe should. And we should be asking ourselves tough questions, both, you know, individually, collectively, you know, um, you know, what, what type of society do we want? You know, and I, I think that is, you know, easier said than done, but something that we really should examine. So, you know, I'll go to a very specific example. Um, obviously, we have um, WAMADA, the Washington Metropolitan Area Transit Authority, um, you know, for that serves the greater D.C. metro reason, uh, region, uh, better known as uh, Metro for most people in, in the DMV, the Delaware, Maryland and Virginia district. You know, they are definitely facing about a $750 million fiscal cliff. And, you know, one, uh, it is interesting to see because, you know, they've brought in some new leadership over the last year or so that have really done some great things in terms of leading, you know, recovery out of the pandemic, getting train service frequencies down, you know, restoring service, you know, working on security and safety and really getting, you know, America's transit system back to, you know, a high functioning level. Uh, and I think it's been an interesting strategy to try to really make the system. They've also made some really great strides in customer service. And a lot of this is sort of, in my take, been a strategy to go, hey, look, this is how great this system can be. And this is what it's doing to serve the region. And now that we're looking at, okay, we do have this fiscal cliff. And WAMAD is really interesting because of its governance structure, right? It relies on the state of Maryland, Virginia, and Congress, you know, uh, for funding. And it, it will be fascinating to see how that works itself out and whether or not that region and the, the jurisdictions and municipalities, you know, make decisions of, hey, this is valuable to the region. We need this system to function. Uh, and regardless of what has happened during COVID, right, we're seeing ridership peak on transit systems, um, or not just peak, but ridership, right, in the evenings, on the weekends, I think there, there, there is a need that these systems are filling, and we just need to decide that we're going to run them, you know, and fund them um, to, 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 to meet that need. The last thing I'll say is that the state of New York uh, made some decisions. They, the MT, the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, that primarily serves, you know, the, the metro region of New York, also facing a fiscal cliff. But the state decided that the MTA is important enough to the function of society that they were going to save it. And not only did they save the system, they actually included more funding to increase subway service in midday evenings and weekends, because that is where we're seeing ridership.
please. So once again, I really think it, it comes down to priorities and, and the, the type of, uh, you know, society that we want to have. Yeah, it's part of it's a reflection of our values collectively as a society or a commonwealth or some political entity. There was an article by an unnamed author um, in a well-known publication several months ago that talked about, is public transit a public good? And I'm not going to get into the details, but uh, the argument was that uh, on its face, it's not a, a public good. And I would argue that that's just a, a fallacy. Um, and really, we have to think about, you know, how, um, you know, this this type of infrastructure um, helps a society function stronger, um, equitably, as well as across a, a variety of variables. So that's really key. Thank you, Jerome, for kind of hitting upon that. Um, the second question I'd like to kind of uh, pose your way is, is fare-free or fare-free um, ticketing the silver bullet to addressing equity, such as what we're seeing in many cities right now, like in Kansas City, uh, pilot projects in Boston, and across, uh, I think, even in D.C. and some other, other uh, schemes? Yeah, another big ticket question. Uh, you know, I think, so the first thing I'll say, I think this is very situational and contextual to the specific system, their funding structure, their their ridership, the scale, um, because I, I think there are certain situations and certain communities where exploring fare-free might make sense. And typically, we've seen this at some of more mid-size and smaller markets where their fare box recovery ratio, which that is the amount of money that the agency actually takes in from collecting fares. Um, you know, the highest one is in New York City. Um, I, I think it was sort of close to almost half. It might be somewhere between 40% and, and 50%. Um, and then it dwindles from there. Um, but some of those smaller mid-size and, and small urban and small rural systems, right? Um, it could be the situation where they spend more money collecting fare and administering the fare than they do actually take from from you know charging people for fares. And I think there is a real question there about okay, is it even worth it to charge, mm -hmm. right? Or could we use that money to just provide better service, right? Or or think about some other model of of paying for transit service, you know, whether it's you know talking to businesses or setting up TIF districts or things like that. So, um, you know, I, it is not a silver bullet. I want to I want to be clear that I think especially in some of the bigger systems, right, the, the amount of money that it takes to operate these systems and keep them operating is significant. And that fair revenue does help to some extent, you know, uh, cover some of that. Um, and I think we also have to worry about um, it's not enough to make a bus free. You know, if the bus still only runs once an hour free bus once an hour isn't really providing the access and mobility. What's, what's the point? Yeah. Right. right. And if we're, we're talking we're about equity. Point. Yeah, exactly. Right. And we're talking about equity, which, you know, <laughs> big, I, I have lots of thoughts about the word equity is such a buzzword, but, you know, if we're really thinking about like, we want to provide people with reliable, frequent service that gives them access to opportunity. Yeah. If the bus is free, but it still runs once an hour, they miss that bus. They're going to lose their job anyway. Right. And some of the research has been done. Research was right. Exactly. Research was done by my, one of my previous employers, Transit Center and many other entities saying, you know, folks, especially people that are low income, they value their time just as much as anyone, just as much as anyone else. Right. right. And um, ultimately, they want to get to where they want to go when they need to get there. And the bus being free isn't the nest isn't the first thing that comes to mind. It's like, is that service available and is it reliable? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree with that. Um, Oh, sorry, go on. 
and yeah, I just want to add one thing. The other thing, though, we have seen a lot of communities do, and we'd like to see these programs expanded more, is reduced fare programs. And, you know, free fares for certain populations. Maybe, you know, everyone under 18, maybe they do get to ride free, right? Veterans, right? Seniors, at least half fare programs. Um, in, in New York City, there's a program called Fair Fares um, that has gotten some more funding, uh, but it's still not as widely publicized as it should be. And I think especially for larger systems, that's a great way to go. So there's half medium of like, yeah, how do we get to a place where we do reduce the burden of the fare um, without totally eliminating it? And I think that's a more practical and maybe more politically uh, feasible solution for, for certain communities. And certainly we'd love to see that expanded along with fare capping, where we cap the maximum daily, weekly, or monthly rate that people pay. I do think that th those type of programs are good and I'd love to see those expanded. So putting up the guardrails, having uh, better equitable programs for certain kind of demographics and populations, just like what we have here in Lisbon, you know, uh, seniors and students ride for free on Lisbon public transport on all modes. So you have that program here. It's not fare free for everyone, but and then it's reduced for different kind of segments. Um, and I think that um, right sizing or right pricing the fare structures along with fare capping is probably the middle path versus kind of this all or nothing approach or, you know, the panacea of the silver bull, like we talked about. So that's that's a great perspective, Jerome. I'm going to kind of jump ahead in our questions. I really want to dig this question out. So I want to make sure we don't run out of time for this one. Um, but it's 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 my favorite. And I've asked this actually of our first guest, which is Carol Schweiger, but I want to get your take on it, which is do microtransit, or as we call here in Europe, DRT, demand response transit, do those services even pencil out? Oh, yeah, this question. Microtransit. I so my my personal take on microtransit that it is a tool in a toolbox that has many different things, right? And for for our audience members, because I know we're trying to make this accessible, it's like microtransit is one yeah, of those Yeah, we should topics. probably define it. My it's bad. like, what is microtransit? Yeah, what and is this thing? This is my definition. I'm not <laughs> saying it is the definition, you know, but it is something that is, um, you know, a, a typically a smaller vehicle than what we think of as traditional transit, whether that's a 40-foot bus, a light rail vehicle, or a metro vehicle. You know, it could be a car, a sedan, it could be a van, but it could be similar to the vehicles that are also used in paratransit service um, that we see usually often used for, you know, uh, those folks who maybe have a disability or have special medical needs to be transported around. Uh, but microtransit typically does not operate on what we call fixed route, right? Your, your typical bus route, you know, has, it goes down that street, it stops at those stops, that's it. You know, obviously your trains, they're on tracks, they go where they go. Microtransit sort of has this flexibility of, of operating freely, but typically within a fixed area, a zone. So, uh, but getting, you know, more to your question about whether or not these pencil out, you know, I think the reality is that they cost a lot of money to operate. They still require, you know, we require the human capital to drive the vehicle. Um, but I do think in particular situations that it can be a useful tool to fill in gaps or maybe provide service in places where it just doesn't make sense for traditional fixed route service. So, for example, you know, there are just a lot of parts of America that are suburban and increasingly even exurban um, and rural. And you know, there is a question about what is the viability of operating a regular fixed route service in certain places, particularly if that place is not designed in a way where it is walkable or easily accessible for people to get to 
service. Because the one thing about trance is that you got to be able to walk there. Everyone sort of begins and ends their journey as a pedestrian, you know, and a lot of traditional transit. So I do think that um, because we have so much of the country that lives in places where the land use does not uh, support you know, necessarily good fritz route transit, that microtransit can be a way to fill in those gaps. It can be a way to feed uh, fixed route transit. You know, if there is, you know, BRT, light rail, metro, or even just a, a frequent bus, but maybe just beyond the zone of where that bus runs, there's, you know, this warehouse district where people need to go or a senior community, you know, but folks, they can't, they can't, they can't ride the bus to the grocery store, you know? So I do think that it can play a role but it is, once again, it's not a silver bullet. It has to be very contextual, looking at the land use and the area and the, the people that it's serving, the types of trips that it can serve. Um, but it should be thought about very carefully and used sparing, you know, sparingly. If just, it is not, um, I do not think, it, you know, it can't replace the, the efficiency and, uh, and the you know, capacity of, of regular transit, but certainly definitely a, a gap filler. I believe Jarrett Walker would probably agree with your statements right there. And I agree as well, too. It, it, it's a very surgical approach and it's contextual base. It's part of a toolbox um, and it has to fill in uh, gaps like in transit deserts, et cetera, or feeders, really. That, that's the highest, let's say, business case or value proposition for D, uh, BR, DRT or microtransit. Uh, but unfortunately, what we have seen especially across the Sun Belt, I must say, in many states ranging from North Carolina to Texas to Arizona, especially more in the southern tier of the U.S., certain municipalities are looking at that silver bullet approach of replacing fixed route with microtransit. And that has been a very troublesome trend. And I've heard it's amongst many different agencies and uh, colleagues that uh, ha still believe that that could be the solution to all their problems without understanding kind of what's under the hood and the economics of it, as well as the contextual basis that you had just laid out for our audience here. So I think that that's still kind of where we're at right now. Um, there's many different kind of, um, let's say, marketing or branding messages around what this offer and what this kind of um, content, this uh, concept is, but it's good to have conversations such as ourselves here to at least kind of unpack this for the audience so that they understand uh, that um, it, it's part of uh, many different uh, solutions that help let's say, strengthen um, fixed route in higher density urban environments that are walkable with street uh, networks that are highly connected, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but again, uh, understanding that it serves a purpose in these uh, suburban and exurban or even rural areas. So just kind of adding a little bit my uh, take on that as well, too. Um, yeah, not to interrupt, but I guess I just wanted to like hammer hammer home another point that every transportation plan should also be a land use plan. And most of our transportation problems are land use problems. Absolutely. And it, it really comes down to microtransits almost like because we have planned these cities that are more auto-centric than they are designed for people, we have to make up for that lack of people-centric design. And microtransit is sort of like almost a, a sort of a stopgap measure that is that is kind of fixing some of you know some of those issues but you did also mention I, I just had to throw this out there too that the reality is even in some urban walkable areas we do have transit deserts just as we have food deserts sure. and um, I do think you know with a lens on equity and, and, and serving people um, you know that's a particular case that uh, you know we can we can look at 
Absolutely. Yeah. It's not even just rural and suburban, but even in higher density urban districts, there are areas, at least in North America, I'm not going to speak to here in Europe, but in North America that are still underserved and don't present themselves uh, as well for uh, serving accessibility and equity. So I, I completely agree with you on that. All right. So uh, kind of moving on to our next question here, I'm just kind of jumping around. Um, let's talk about electrification. So uh, you know, given the recent, uh, let's say, uh, bankruptcy announcement by uh, Proterra, the bus electrification, um, you know, uh, company, uh, what's the current state of fleet electrification at the national uh, kind of regional local level and kind of leveraging uh, federal funding, as well as kind of driving uh, many public policies looking towards uh, decarbonization of the transport sector? Yeah. You know, I think the electric vehicles in general, uh, obviously big topic. There's a lot of pressure and incentives, as you mentioned, from sort of the national level, not just for transit to electrify, but, you know, people's personal vehicles to be electrified. And I think that it's, it is a sort of shiny thing that's new and exciting. Um, but I question whether or not we've really stepped back to think of the implications and the implementation of what it actually takes to scale this. Um, so, you know, almost every sort of transit agency has been mandated, right, to switch to some form of low or no fuel, you know, buses over the next, you know, many, either many years or very soon. And ultimately, if the goal, because this is my question with electrification, I'm not against electrification. I think it's at a certain point, yes, that's, we should figure out how, how do we decarbonize our, our, our vehicles and also make sure that the power source that is charging these vehicles is also, uh, you know, not reliant on fossil fuel. But right. if the goal is to reduce emissions, then in my, especially when we're talking about transit, then the most essential thing we can do is run more service because 40 people on a diesel bus is still far better Still better than one person in an EV. Than one person in an EV. Exactly. Because ultimately, yeah. part of the problem we're talking about is not the propulsion system. It's also, it's a geometry problem. Right? Yeah. Jared Walker, many people have said it's like, it's, yeah. right, it's a space problem. Geometry. Um, and electric vehicles, right, we have to talk about where the batteries coming from, where are those precious minerals coming from? What do we mm -hmm. do with the batteries when we're done with them, right? There's a lot of external ex externalities, too, that we need to lay out. Um, so, you know, for a lot of agencies, though, they're having to think about, okay, we have to retrofit existing facilities for electric. That costs a lot of money. We have to work with the local utility provider to figure out how we're going to, you know, increase the flow of electricity and, and feed into the grid, um, and, and then think about contingency planning for emergencies, right? If there are certain regions that are, you know, prone to like, you know, hurricanes or flooding, right? Off the grid. What, Off right. Grid. What is the contingency emergency plan there? Um, and so it, it, it is, it is challenging because to scale up, it really does one require also that we have the manufacturers that are able to meet the demand and the need. And clearly you, you mentioned, uh, Proterra, which I don't want to get too deep into that, um, but, you know, you know, we, we have seen, obviously, that in the U.S., we do not have as robust of, of a transit industry as, as, as we need, because clearly we don't have a lot of in-house, uh, in you know, U.S. manufacturers of buses or trains, for that matter, yeah. right? And I think that kind of speaks to, we, see, we saw Nova Bus recently decided to pull out of the U.S., right, because oh, they're just right. not getting, uh, they're just not seeing the market. And, you know, that should be a red flag 
for, for, mm -hmm. for many reasons. So I think it's a complicated issue. You know, the goal of, of decarbonizing is a good one and we should get there, but we need to think about ultimately how we do that. What's the implementation? And then once again, if we're getting back to, we want to reduce emissions, the best thing we could do is fund and run a lot more transit service, regardless of how the vehicles are powered. Well said, uh, you know, I mean, getting back to basics is really the theme here. So I, I'm kind of cherry picking all these panacea silver bullets. I mean, that's my modus operandi here. I'm doing this on purpose, you know, to kind of generate a little bit of, uh, you know, um, discussion and controversy. But really, I, I think that the key, though, is to understand that, um, you know, a lot of these uh, solutions that are overly simplistic aren't looking at the fundamental root cause or the fundamental problems at hand that we know how to solve and we know, but it just requires, you know, a little bit of this, uh, this work that is involved to try to, you know, make it happen. And then like you had mentioned, uh, kind of this, um, let's say alignment between land use and transportation and making sure that that is um, implemented and provided the right political and fiscal as well as stakeholder support that it needs. Um, I think we still have enough time for the last question here, which is um, around uh, kind of talking about back to the basics. So getting away from those, the shiny silver bullets and the panaceas, but more to talking about how can, as you, I think you've already spoken to this a bit in the previously, but how can higher frequency strengthen networks? So how can we actually make this happen? Or what are some interesting uh, use cases that um, can kind of point American public transit agencies uh, forward, um, given a lot of this noise and a lot of this hype. Yeah, you know, I think when we talk about frequency, which is, you know, running vehicles more often, they arrive at, at stops and station points more, more often than they do. Um, it isn't always a sexy topic necessarily, right? It's like, you know, people, the not, ribbon cutting frequency. Problem. Right? No, no, of course not. Um, but I will say what was exciting in New York City, the funding that I mentioned that the state of New York provided to the MTA to kind of bail them out of the fiscal cliff and then provide additional subway service, the MTA has actually sort of done official sort of like ribbon cuttings for, hey, weekend service increasing on the G train. We're cutting the ribbon for frequency. And I said, I thought to myself, oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. Because people don't view that. No, not yeah, they don't view that. But it's great because that yeah. that is significant. That is meaningful to people. Um, transit service is only as good as how useful it is. So that is how often it comes and the span of service. When is it running, right? Um, we still have communities in this country where there is no weekend service or no Sunday service or service even stops like after 8 p.m. on weekdays. Yes. We have people that work first, second, and third shift jobs, you know, People who are working in in hospitality industry, service, you know, uh, th that is not useful to them. Uh, and so we, you know, increasing the frequency and the span of service is, is really should be something we're looking at. So some of the ways we've seen that unfold, we've seen a lot of systems do bus system redesigns recently, mm -hmm. right? And there's a lot of things we don't have time to get into all the talks of that. You know, generally, I think they're a good idea. You know, generally, we have seen the places that have implemented them. They've had some sort of net positive result in ridership and and faster travel times for most people. However, you know, we do. Um, once again, it gets back down to the, the uh, specifics of communities, right? There are um, potential negative side effects too, right? Of like, yes, in theory, 
we redesigned the routes, but we have to spread them all out a little bit. We spread out the stops a little bit more, but now we're causing some populations of people maybe having to walk further. You know, but we say, well, but the trade-off is yeah. you're walking for better service, which yeah. I think a lot of people generally are okay with. But mm -hmm. you know, we do need to be more thoughtful about that, you know, in terms of, you know, uh, but it's always a trade-off, ridership coverage. There's no and there's no right answer. It's ridership not a 50-50. That's right. right. Every community is going to make that decision about what is the right balance for them and what is the, what amount of money do they have? Because we've seen bus system redesigns that actually increase the amount of service, you know, the money that we're spending for the service and bus redesigns that are sort of neutral in terms of cost where we're just reallocating. Maybe we had duplicative service, you know, it was only a block or two apart, but now we're spreading that out to every four blocks, right? Mm -hmm. And, yeah, exactly. you know, and we're combining like what was, you know, three routes is now just, you know, two or one, but that one route is coming every 10 minutes, you know, mm -hmm. so for a lot of people, that is a reason, you know, they'll be like, okay, I'm willing to walk another block because that bus is coming. Um, and so I think, you know, to, but it's always a question about trade-offs. So we've seen the bus system network uh, redesign really play out. I think the other, the final thing I'll say is really simple. You know, we always look at Europe, uh, but I would always argue to Americans first, look below us, right? At Mexico, also look at South America. There's a lot of great stuff happening with transit there. I've been but very silent about Europe because I've seen your social media <laughs> posts. I know, you, I know you're very North America centric, which is great. So I, I wanted to be a bit silent about what's happening on the side of the pond and talk about some of the success stories in US, Canada, Mexico. So I, th that has been intentional on this podcast, just so you know. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate that. And then, yeah, if I know, so you, so you said Canada. I'm like, well, you want to see something that's really similar. It's like land use, very similar. It's but pretty you know much what? the same in the land they, use. In the land use side, but they fund transit like twice per capita than we do in the US. And even in their smaller bus only cities, ridership is like double or more because yeah. it's just frequent and available. And cool. I think that gets back to the basics of like, just fund service, run the service, you know, make sure that buses can get to where they need to go, whether it's dedicated lanes, you know, transit signal priority, you know, designing the stops differently, like, but give, give the bus the priority to move because the bus is really the silent workhorse of most of our systems. Even our systems that have extensive rail, at the end of the day, rail never will and can't go everywhere. And that bus fills in critical gaps. And so by making the bus better, it just makes everything else better. It is back to the basics. Um, and uh, it can be done with the political will, with uh, the societal norms that uh, value this as a uh, public good, comes back to that. And even despite the fact that we have medium to low density, uh, you know, uh, land use and urbanization across the North American continent, U.S. and Canada are pretty equal in that, uh, you know, um, basis. But uh, one uh, example clearly outshines the other in terms of the, uh, let's say, the political, cultural and social level that can, let's say, eclipse the uh, the built environment. The built environment in the US and Canada is vastly different than continental Europe. So I don't need to kind of share that with the audience. I think everyone knows that, which is why public transit just works really well here. But even in North America, you could have two separate experiences like you had just laid out for our audience, given the correct set of circumstances and um, the stakeholders that really want to um, make sure that uh, the public can benefit from this uh, this uh, this uh, societal good, so I think that's really the key here. Um, 
But uh, yeah, I think we've done pretty well with our time here. So we have a few more minutes. So I think with that, maybe we will just uh, ask you uh, maybe just for a minute or so, what is your um, kind of prognosis for the next, let's say, 24 months in terms of this convergence of issues of fare free, microtransit, uh, fiscal cliff? And where do you think uh, U.S. cities, let's leave Canada out for the minute here, but where do you think U.S. cities are going to land in terms of leveraging, um, you know, post-stimulus funding, like we saw the $1 billion, uh, you know, backfill from the state of California and Sacramento to fund public transit for BART, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think we're going to see a lot of that across the country so that um, we can move past the IRA stimulus funding from last year, uh, which, you know, um, the Biden administration was patting themselves on the back a lot, but we saw a lot of funding that went, unfortunately, to highway building. So how can we kind of uh, find a, uh, you know, a middle path forward? in the next two years? Yeah, I, I think that's an excellent question. You know, obviously, I can't predict the future. <laughs> if I could, I probably wouldn't. Your, be your own opinion. Uh, my own opinion. You Crystal know. ball, yeah. Um, you know, I, want, I, I, I do hope that we, at least in the uh, immediate slash midterm, um, fund our transit systems, keep them functioning, you know, figure that out, get that, get that. You mentioned California, which is the, I didn't mention that one earlier. You know, it's something, it's definitely not enough, but it's something, but at least let's buy us time to don't, don't deteriorate the service any more than it already has. Right. Cause that, that's the worst thing that we can see is that we do start cutting the service. It's always harder to put it back. So we have the doom loop, like we we're talking yeah, about. Yeah. We have the doom loop. So <laughs> let's keep what we got. Yeah. Buy us time to really, and then what we really need to do in the next year or so is really think hard. And and this might be on the local level, the state level, the national level. What is the real long term viability of of consistent, sustained funding? Because transit agencies have just been in this constant lurching from crisis to crisis to always, are we going to have money to do this? Are we going to have money? They can't plan anything long term, really. Um, and 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 think about that consistency and. I, I really hope that that is something that we see substantial progress on in the next two years or so, because I think that's going to be critical for the long-term success of transit in the U.S. is we have got to get out of this constant fighting for money, having to go beg for money at the legislator, having to, because that, that just, you know, they can't function, you know, you really need to have that consistency there to really think about pragmatic long-term planning and sustainability of the agency and what they can do. Yeah. And the, and the service they provide, we, we can't have any more uh, orange line disasters in Boston last year with deferred maintenance. We need to have kind of long-term CapEx and OpEx, you know, sustainability. I mean, that's really where, what, what it comes down to. So with that, um, where can, uh, now I'm going to ask you a question, where can our audience find you on social media, Jerome? Yeah, so uh, I am pretty active on social media. Yes. You can find me on uh, X, formerly Twitter, <laughs> at J-A Horn. So that's J-A-H-O-R-N-E. Uh, same thing on Instagram. Uh, same thing on threads. Uh, threads. I decided to, to make the jump to threads in case oh, cool. uh, X tanks. Yeah. Uh, and then LinkedIn. You can find me. Just type in Jerome Horn. You'll find me on LinkedIn there. Uh, and I'm always happy to connect with people in this space, whether you're a professional or just someone who's interested and curious, love meeting people and, and love uh, chatting with folks about how we further the cause of mobility to provide access uh, for all people. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Jerome. And we're excited to hear about uh, what's what's on the horizon for you personally, professionally. I'm sure you'll be kind of uh, making announcements down the road, but uh, really excited to kind of follow your own career arc and everything. It's been so impressive. 
Um, and then, um, so thank you once again for joining us here today, Jerome. It's been a real pleasure. And to our audience, um, thank you for uh, kind of joining us here on the Cities First. So um, this episode will be up momentarily and we'll be sharing it on social media channels. We'll be tagging Jerome as well. Um, and then also um, look out for our uh, webinar series, our quarterly webinar, which will be next month. We'll be talking about what's next in micromobility. So we'll have a little bit more of a roundtable panel discussion. We do that every three months, but uh, our regular podcast format is with uh, ind industry experts such as Jerome. So again, Jerome, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, I hope this could be one of uh, many, you know, a sequence of discussions we can have either um, virtually like here in person in New York or when you're on this side of the pond at some point soon. But uh, yeah, I'm glad we were able to finally make it happen. This is this is a huge milestone. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank you again, Scott, for inviting me on the show. It's been fun to listen to the other episodes, and uh, this is this has been a really great experience. So, looking forward to more. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Jerome. So, thanks everyone. Um, and then you can find us on all uh, basic channels such as uh, Spotify, Google. Uh, Apple, as well as Amazon. And uh, you can hear the audio recording of our podcast there. So uh, thanks a lot, Jerome. Appreciate your time. Yeah, that was great.